Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 504. And by God, have I got a good episode for you today. Today's guest is Bisha K. Ali. And after we recorded it, they kind of emailed. Oh, no, it was when we were chatting after we, we pressed stop, they kind of said, I hope that was okay. And honestly, it felt like a classic. I said this with the Saul Williams one the other week, I think, but it felt like a classic distraction piece. It felt a lot of people often reference the Eddie Temple Morris episode and the Gail Porter episode and and the Limmy episode and the Jeff Lloyd episode. And we really get into some heavy stuff here. And I should give a trigger warning of mental health um, struggles, uh, the causes and results. But yeah, Bishop was so open. But before any of that, it's amazing. Even if we didn't go to a typically Scroobius Pip dark place. It's an amazing chat. Bisher has worked on either like from staff writer to sh- sh- showrunner to all sorts on s- some of my favourite shows, primarily the Loki TV series, which was directed by the amazing Kate Heron, who I hope is going to come on at some point. Me and Kate have talked a few times about Kate coming on, but I never want to hassle anyone. It always has to be at the right time. And Kate is often in the middle of work stuff or real life stuff. And I support both of those things. (laughs) So, yeah. But also, Miss Marvel. Bisher was also a huge part of which rightfully got huge amounts of praise. But we take ages to get onto anything Marvel, I think. Bisher also worked on sex education the Four Weddings and the Funeral series. We I've referenced Bisher a few times in other episodes. Uh, so I was really pleased to get this chat in. And as said, it couldn't have been better, to be completely honest. Um, before we get into it, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it now. This also came at a really important time for me because we touch upon some stuff that I hadn't really expressed much with anyone. We also talk about activism Um, And I've expressed a few times some of the toughness in balancing working with Stammer, the British Stammer and Association, and keeping my own mind sane. So so we get into loads of really good stuff. It's an amazing chat. Um, We're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can buy all my merch. We recently, out of nowhere, dropped a uh, very exciting thing for the 20th anniversary of personal journals from sage francis so we were delighted to be the exclusive uk and eu store for that um so keep an eye on stuff over there go and have a little browse there's a lot of good stuff uh we're also brought to you by patreon.com forward slash scroobius pip that's where you can support the podcast for like a dollar or two dollars a month and it helps helps pay the bills essentially yeah that's kind of everything f- f- for now. As I said, I love this chat and I really, me and Bisha have communicated for a little while now. Instantly, I got a good vibe off of them and that was confirmed in this conversation in the openness and the uh, the the warmth and the empathy and all of these things I think are so essential in the world at the moment because there's a lot of places where those those things are missing, those character traits are not present. Let's get into it, shall we? This is episode 504 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Bisha K. Ali. 
I'm joined today by Bisha K. Ali. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm so excited to finally get to speak with you. Same. I think we've been trying to make this happen for some time. Yeah, we've been we've been lining it up for a while, but I mean, we'll talk about that a bit. The world of of a writer is a weird one for work, for stress, for everything else. So I'm sure we'll get into all of that. But <clears throat> and let's kind of start by talking about how we met because I was tweeting gushing over a show that you 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 were a part of Loki which blew me away right. and we'll talk about some of that and you reached out to to say that you were aware of me as well kind of thing so it's always one of those n- nice moments when you're pouring out praise just because it's good to pour out praise and then you get you know a nice note back <laughs> oh thank you no I remember that and it was really I always feel it's such a weird job, as you said. Um, but the, it's, it's really nice when people are complimentary, eh? And it's very neutral when people aren't. And uh, I think with you, I think I've always been aware of distraction pieces and kind of jumped in, in and out of the kind of years. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was my friend who sent it to me, like a screenshot of you tweeting about the show, because he was like, oh, it's like, it's like writing about you. I was like, oh, cool. I didn't realise like what a cultural impact you had for him. Yeah. And he was he's one of my best friends. And he was like, man, we used to listen to his music like back at uni all the time. And I was like, did you? Because I, I, I hadn't at that point. Yeah. Like I also would never, it got, it took a while. It was like post my 20. It was like in the, it was after uni for me that I became like a music head in any real way. So that's how it kind of got on my radar. And I was like, oh, cool. Awesome. And then I kind of wanted to reach out to you because I think it's nice to just connect with people. I do that a lot. I'm like, oh, if you say something nice. And also if you are someone who's doing something that you love and believe in, I'm always like excited to engage with someone who's passionate about whatever it is they are doing in their lives. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. And I I talked about this on the, I think it was on the the Films of the Year podcast I did, that we live in a world now where media is consumed so quickly at such a speed, like things come out and there's a buzz for a minute and then it's over. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more important than ever to reach out to the creators of these things if you enjoyed it, because it's easy not to. And it's easy to not realise that a year of someone's life went into that, or two years of someone's life, or three years of a group of people's lives went into that. And you have this moment, and and as I said, Loki was an example of that. I started it a a little bit late, and then as soon as I started it, I was just blown away. It, weirdly, it wasn't one of the ones on the slate I was particularly excited about. I was like, I'm sure I'll watch yeah. it at some point. Right. I've seen a lot of Loki in the films. He's been all over the place for a long time. Yeah. So I held off for a bit and then it really, it blew me away. So, but again, it is one of those things that, you know, I binged it in <laughs> a, a week or two. I mean, there's only six episodes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate And that. then you can move on with your life though. And as I said, I think those things are important <laughs> to kind of go, oh man, clearly a lot of work has gone into this. And it's yeah. n- nice t- to let people know that it's it's been appreciated rather than all you're getting is some viewing figures or reviews or all the very clinical yeah. version of how a show has done. Absolutely. And also the people who are most vocal are usually the ones who are like, oh, why did, why did this thing happen? Yeah. You're like, yeah, well, it just did, you know, it just did, brother. It's, it's fine. Yeah. Or, I mean, well, yeah. st- starting w- with that, while we're on Loki, mm. what a show. And what an important show, I think, because it introduces uh, Jonathan Majors as as yes. Kang, who is looking like being the most important character in Marvel going forward. And to be honest, one of the most pe- 
most important people in my life as a fan. I can't get en- enough of Jonathan Majors at the moment. Just he's incredible. Everything he, he does, just, he's so yeah. charming, so talented. Yeah, glorious. No, absolutely. I remember really clearly there's another writer in the room and it was kind of, I don't know how far into the room we were and we are just kind of talking about kind of like who this character is and what they feel like. And I remember me and her went for like lunch or something, just the two of us. And on the way back, she was like, have you watched The Last Black Man in San Francisco? I was like, yeah, we just watched it the other week. And she was like, Jonathan Majors, huh? And I was like, Jonathan Majors. And I remember us kind of coming back to the room and talking about it. And then the exec talking about it. And, you know, obviously he was already doing so well for himself. He's already on Marvel's radar. But I remember us, like, two Jonathan Majors fangirls in the room, like, advocating for him (laughs) in that writer's room, really, really early doors before anyone was officially cast. I love Um, that. And so we just, me me and that writer, we always kind of, look at each other and like Jonathan Majors like yeah look full circle so it's really it's really nice and he's so incredibly talented in every scale if that makes sense yeah he's just magnetic so I'm so happy for him I completely agree and I love hearing stories like that because it's a conversation I've had kind of privately with Brett Goldstein who's a who's who's been a power for a long time and when I had Joel um, Egerton on the podcast he spoke about how in this industry as actors or creators or whatever else it's really easy to compare your projects, to compare your profile to Mm -hmm. other people. But the thing that Joel, I think, was saying in that was with Animal Kingdom, it's like when Animal Kingdom came out for them in Australia, they all felt it was a flop because it felt like it was only seen by the film nerds. But the fact is the film nerds are going to be the ones often that end up in the industry and driving the industry and and, Mm -hmm. and pushing these things. And Jonathan's performance in Last Black Man in San Francisco was just astounding. I couldn't look away. I didn't know, I couldn't, as an actor, I couldn't understand any of his choices or where it came from. It was just such a gentle but magnetic performance. And that's it. That was a tiny film, hardly got much of a UK release. But those who will have been in those screenings and in those screens and watching that will be the people who who care and are, are potentially... Could kind Absolutely. of be, be talking about it in 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 the right rooms in the future. Absolutely, I think whatever layer of I mean, talking about LA in particular, but whatever layer of um, the industry you work in, you don't work in this industry unless you really want to. Yeah. <laughs> like it's really hard. Yeah. You have to really love the medium, whatever that specific medium is. And so, where people are watching and consuming at such a high rate, I think when I first got to LA, having been here for a while, um, no, having lived here most of my life in England, I was overwhelmed by the amount that people were able to be eloquent about what they were watching because they're watching so much stuff mm-hmm. while running a show while doing stuff full-time on across multiple projects I'd worked on and I thought I already consumed so much film and television yeah. and I had to up my game like I had to like be able to keep up with those conversations and also frankly you just have to do it to be able to be good at your job I think to be not just keeping up with but have a extensive knowledge of what's come before and I think that was really a big difference that I found when I went out there it was great so yeah people are watching whatever it is someone someone an exec at the company you think will never think of you has probably seen it like someone has for sure so you're absolutely right it's one of the small kind of advantages I've seen in recent weeks I've been having some meetings recently for a film project I'm trying to get off the ground and the fact Mm. is I moved into this industry because I was doing music but Everyone I knew in film and TV, anytime we met up, I would just, I'm a nerd for this yeah. shit. So it was great to be in these meetings and 
this particular week, obviously it's not always the case, but any example that was brought up, it was like, yep, I know that film, inside and out, I can jump in. And, you know, particularly when there is, you know, I'm a working class lad with a stammer from a small town, you're going to feel out of place in a a lot of those Mm -hmm. rooms. So having moments like that that make me go, oh, no, no. I'm I'm allowed here. No. I know what we're talking about. You know, this is a absolutely and like that's the point of connection, right? Is the is the medium is the art form. Yeah. So if there's nothing else that you have in common, the one thing that should be able to connect you up is the thing that we all want to do, which is tell great stories on screen. So the, there's also like a advantage to being able to speak. So and by eloquent, I don't mean by any kind of social political standards that we've made up to kind of isolate certain groups of people. I mean specifically in terms of however you express yourself best. Yeah being eloquent in those, being able to eloquently talk about those things that you love and, and storytelling is the point of connection will help build a relationship with people who otherwise, I don't know how we'd hang out. Yeah. So, yeah. I completely understand that. And you speak about, you know, what we all want to do is tell amazing stories. How was it to work on a show like Loki? Because it's a complex show. So while, you know, you are wanting to tell stories, it's a show that plays with time and time travel and dimensions and all mm. sorts of things like that. So that is a different angle to write in yes. as well, particularly if you're yeah. writing within a team. Everyone has to be tying all these on board, c- yeah. corners and all these strings together. How is that as a, as a process? Because it's not just, here's the emotions I want to get across, here's this, here's that. It's like, right, so the timeline's like this, but they're from that dimension, so that allows that and, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, every single writer's room is going to have its own process. In this particular case, the emotional arcs were more important than anything else. So it's we knew exactly what that emotional arc was from relatively early on. Mm. It's how do you manifest that thematically through the world-building elements and also how do you make those world-building elements make sense, all the things that you're asking about. Then you kind of get into the weeds, right? So then you're kind of, my God, the amount of times I kind of was at a whiteboard with a pen being like, no, this is how... This is what a branching timeline would be. And then someone else will come up, well, no, that doesn't make sense because... And then they're putting up... And it's like like the shittiest physics professors because none of us really know what we're talking about, yeah. but we are so committed to our idea of why our thing makes sense. Yeah. So we're kind of going around the houses on that. And then just so many houses that we went around to try and figure out how time travel worked. And then also not just how does time travel work, but how does our conception of it work? And then how do we make all those rules as internally consistent as possible? And it's hard enough to do that on something a group is originating, but also originating it within an existing, like a decade-long-plus cinematic universe. And you just don't have, in the same way that we are so, as a group of writers, so in the heads of our own show, that we know how our show is built, and we've had the multiple debates and thrown out ideas and put them back in, et cetera, et cetera. So we're in the bones of what we're trying to create logically and our internal logic. But because we we haven't written all the movies of the MCU yeah. or everything that exists already, so it's just not in your bones in the same way to adapt to those. So it's not kind of muscle reflex to, in your thinking yeah. to adapt to those pieces. So that meant that we then have to course correct along the way when we'd kind of broken some inalienable rule, I suppose. Um, and then, yeah, just lots of arguing. I, I remember me and the exec producer from Marvel, and we got along so well, but there was one day like deep into this timeline conversation. But we just got into this really heated, like we we never got, we, we like adore each other. We're still friends to this day. We talk all the time. He's like a massive movie nerd guy. And like, we just got into it, man. We just got into it about whether or not there's a heat death at the end of the universe. And I was like, well, we can't, like there might be. And he was like, no, there is. And I was like, no, but we can't possibly say there is because we are not at the end of, like, we don't know which theory is correct. I'm saying that you're not wrong. I'm just saying that, 
that's not an absolute truth. Like we can't, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, so I'm yeah. getting heated just talking about the conversation. No, <laughs> the way we went at each other, and it's also like, because we were figuring out what does the end of the universe look like? I.e., when they're going to get to He Who Remains at the in final episode, what does that mean in terms of what, how you represent that on the diagram? Mm. Like, how does that work? So anyway, sorry, I've kind of, I'm boring myself talking about this timeline because I spent so long oh, talking it. about it. I love the intricacies. Um, so like loads of those things were kind of debated for ages. And then, you know, you've then, once you've done all of that work and thinking and whether or not you agree with the final consensus, we're all like agree enough to be like, okay, this makes sense and works. But then it also has to become secondary to the most important thing, which is character. And so how do we use what we've created to tell an interesting, mysterious story? Like I remember the day that I think it was Jess who came up with the idea of how do you hide? And if you're on a fugitive on the, this timeline that we figured out how it works, mm. how the branch that works, how the next, like the pruning works. Well, how do you hide in that if someone's got overall oversight? And so what's the level of like view that the TVA has over that timeline? Are they, uh, how, how close and how microscopic is that? vision on everybody and so and if they have like a very full view and I can't remember how we did it in the end but where how do you hide like how yeah. on earth could you hide and so that was how the kind of you hide an apocalypse because it's going to get pruned because everything's going to get destroyed anyway so yeah who, who's watching and that was really fun so kind of once you've built those kind of big ideas of like this is how this thing works and we've just we're agreed we're going to go down this road this is how this element of the world works then you get to play with what you just built yeah and say well how do we trick ourselves or how do we how do we hide or like escape of the trap that we built for ourselves using this? So like that's the really fun bit as well is always being able to do those hard thinking things and have those heat death fights. But once you've built it, you can then like, oh, build a cool thing around it. And that's, I think that's the really fun bit. I love it. And I love sorry. the balance. I talk about it for ages. No, <laughs> no, I adore it. You, you will have seen me beaming away there because I'm a creative at heart, but I'm a massive slave to logic. I'm, 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 I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with it. So like the the one time I did jury duty, they ended up having to kind of exclude me from the jury, or 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 because because <laughs> normally in in the UK they have to get a hundred percent decision, and then if you can't, they will ask if the judge will accept a majority, and they had to ask that because every time people were saying the person was guilty, I was like, well, no, because it could have been this. There's reasonable doubt, all this, and that mm-hmm. everyone else would just go, yeah, but come on, I'm like. No, you can say, yeah, but come on as many times as you want. But there's yeah, reasonable but we doubt this that position. this could have... Yeah. It's quite possible it happened like this. But the point of us is to go, it's yeah. also possible, though, that that didn't happen. So yeah. I can't say there's no reasonable doubt because logic says there is. And people were getting furious with me because they all just want to go home and have a half day because they're off work, they're being paid. And I'm there going... And again, they're making arguments like, but, but look at him. I'm like... Don't care what he looks like. No, it's there's nothing to do with me. Yeah, exactly. You're not helping anything. You're making me more strict on this. Yeah, you're making me think this is why I should yeah, exist here. Because <laughs> because of statements like that. It's also like, what's your sensitivity to uncertainty? Yeah. And everyone's sensitivity for uncertainty, I think, is different. I don't mean this about storytelling, I mean this about everything. Yeah. And how how much certainty do you need to feel comfortable with a decision or committing to something? Yeah. And in the case of like making a show it's not perfect. Like we don't know. And I mean that generally, like no internal logic is going to be completely perfect. Does it meet all the things that feel most important? And can you use that to then structure something that's beautiful, that can kind of be entertaining and also meaningful and say something? So what's your sensitivity to how correct or, you know, air quotes logical that Mm. is, but you know, what will, what will do is kind of part of the, the thought process. And everyone's, level of that is different and that's where there are no stakes in the case of your thing 
where you're in jury duty, the stakes are high. You're yeah. going to affect somebody's life fundamentally forever. Yeah. So, yeah, I always think, I think about that question a lot, not just in it's, storytelling, but in life. I think it's n- n- knowing the rules and knowing how important those rules are to you. There's also been numerous sets I've been on where we're, the director's spending ages arguing with people over which mm-hmm. side of the camera we're on and which, how we have to... F- flip on the on on the horizontal and things like that and then there was a guy i was working with in america who was like ah uh, i i can imagine bresson f- focusing on if we've flipped on the horizontal correctly and all this is like no the the classic filmmakers were making these beautiful pieces of art and you know those rules are in there but they're not the most important thing and i think that can be a problem i was discussing this in one of my meetings the other day which i shouldn't have been because i'm there to try and sell an idea and get help and i'm saying the problem with modern film is we're too obsessed with all of the minutiae of rules and everything making exact sense whereas the like the example i always give is is you can look at a painting and love that painting and not understand it not know why Mm -hmm. you can then find out more about the painting it can make you you love it more but you didn't need that in the first place and i think there's a a thing in art that we lose that a bit because we can, because we've got this ability to, and the internet to overanalyze, to break everything down and make everything have a tied up finale and make sense. And yeah, I think there's a balance on all of that, but yeah, maybe not the meeting, the the conversations I'll be having in those moments. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I disagree. I would say that like, I mean, I don't know what specifically you're meeting with, but like I always find that when I'm meeting with producers and people, and I've felt this way before as well, before I kind of had a bit more uh, experience behind me credits, was like, this isn't about, just about me selling you something or selling me. It's kind of, it's more of a date. Like, are we compatible creatively? And are we excited about the same things? Are we thematically excited about the same things? And like tonally and stylistically. And I think Mm. the projects I've kind of gone on to, put into development or work on in any capacity have always ended up being with people who there's some kind of click on some level and so I never never go into those meetings feeling like I'm asking for something I go to those meetings feeling like I mean on the producer side I mean it's different when you're kind of in the sales phase but like just feeling like oh we're looking to be creative partners because I can't make this without you and you can't make stuff without someone like me and what's a good reason for us to keep on dating (laughs) it's kind of the I shouldn't use the dating analogy in a professional context but no no but I think I I completely understand I really had that particularly early when moving into acting and before I had an agent and even it became harder after I had an agent because it's not the way this industry is done and I'm doing it now we're producers and stuff I'm just saying look I just want to get in the room and have a conversation because I'm aware that I'm not going to be right for everything. We're not going Mm -hmm. to be right together on every project. But exactly as you say, I feel if we sit in a room together, at least we will know who we are, where we connect. And then at some point down the line, it may not be this project, it may not be the next project, but we will know, oh, here's something that we can work on together. And I much prefer that kind of, as you say, when there isn't anything I want from them. Like I'd Mm -hmm. rather go in and have a meeting rather than have a meeting about a role because if there's a meeting about a role, no matter how much well, I play yeah, it different. in my head, yeah, yeah. in the back of my head, I'm going to be thinking, I do want to sh- tell them what they want to hear, kind of thing. Whereas no, if we're just going, let's just chat. It's like, yeah. Sorry, I, I was, I, in my head, my context was from kind of a writer, director. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, POV, but also from, you know, if you're being cast and stuff, it's very different. So yeah. I have so much respect for actors. It's so hard. It's a very different angle that you're in that room for. But, you know, equally, if it's a general, I love having actors on my radar. I love having like, coffees with actors and just getting to know them like what excites you what's the kind of roles get a sense of them what who they are and what kind of what part of the process they enjoy and how they I think actors are so interested in how they approach 
character and how they approach material. And I think the pressure on a general is like nothing, hopefully, and that that's purely let's get to know each other. And, you know, casting is a whole other, my goodness, casting is a whole other kettle of fish. Before we talk about Miss Marvel, because we need to get around I don't want to run don't out to. of time. We can we can stop we talking do. about Marvel anytime you I, like me. I loved I loved Miss Marvel though. I loved it as a show. So, uh, but uh, just I want to talk about your route into sure. writing. Like like yeah. you you grew up in, in in London. Am I right? Not quite. So I grew up. I was born in England, but I grew up between England and then Riyadh in Saudi Arabia and yep. Pakistan. So we kind of cycled between the three. Yeah. I mean, we lived in Saudi Arabia for a chunk of time. Then afterwards, I guess we moved back when I was like 12, 13. And then yeah. I lived in England for the remainder of... Lived full-time in England, wherever it was, like in yeah. multiple different places. And, and and was writing always the goal? Or or what was your 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 aim as a as a youngster? I wanted to be a vet at one point. I wanted to have a farm. I don't know, had loads of dreams. I also was like... I still in my head, I'm like, should I go back and do like attempt to do a PhD in astrophysics? Like, is that the thing that I, I want? So I've always, I think that's part of having ADHD is just having multiple interests and not yeah. knowing what to do with them and then not having stamina for all of them. Um, yeah. But I, I always was writing stories. I remember even as a really young kid, my mom really encouraged it because she was really encouraging about books as well. The one thing she would never say no to, no matter how, wherever we were financially, if I wanted a new book, she'd find a way to get me a new book or yeah, get me to a library. So she yeah. was really, really like, there were books everywhere. There were books in the bathtub. There were books wherever I wanted them. So that was always part of kind of the DNA. And then I was always consuming TV and films constantly and stuff that wasn't age appropriate, right? Like, why have you shown... Do you remember that It adaptation, like the one from the late 80s, 90s? Yeah, yeah. The two-parter? Absolutely terrifying, like, wow. yeah. Why was I watching that at six, bro? Like, why? Why was that yeah, happening? No, that's not appropriate. I don't think... I, no. I, I still don't think I finished that as a grown-up because I, yeah. I remember it's just getting a one. glimpse of it as a kid. Part I mean, one no, is no, no, no. too much, man. Part one yeah. is like so in my bones terror. Anyway, sorry. So I was watching and consuming loads and I was reading lo- so much. I was reading so much. And I had... Um, I was quite isolated in a lot of ways, I think, because we're moving between countries all the time and you're a kid, you just don't have a psychological stability that most kids probably get and I felt really hard I found it really because of that move and because of the culture shifts like the three different countries and specific locales within those countries like just kids like I don't know how to talk to the kids on the playground in in England when like I was in a specific place in Pakistan where the conversations are so different (laughs) amongst Mm. children at those ages so I found it very hard to connect to any of those three so I was really consumed and isolated in my reading and my fantasy world and all of those things that's how I kind of escaped from being deeply uncomfortable as a kid and that translated into writing my own stories so I was writing like little short stories since I was very very young and that's Mm. really where it all started it was a good time. I still remember some of them. I still have some of them. But my parents were really like, you have to do something that's going to, I mean, it's a very standard kind of immigrant kind of panic of I have to be stable. Mm-hmm. So I, I studied like, I studied economics at university and then international development and statistics at, for my master's degree. And my dad was still disappointed. Like, he's like, why aren't you a doctor? So it, it was, I was kind of bifurcated in terms of who I was internally and who, what I had to do to like be acceptable in the world. Um, yeah. And then it just rolled on from that. I At the Royal Court, they have a, which is a theatre in London, there's the Young Writers Programme. Yes. And like not long after my first few jobs, I quit because I was like, I can't do this. I don't know how to work in an office. I didn't yeah. know why. Now in my 30s, I know why. But at the time, I didn't know what was wrong with yeah. me. And then that Royal Court Young Writers Programme was really transformative for me and kind of gave me a lot of tools and new, new ways of interrogating character that I still use to this day. And then... I was also starting to do stand-up because I also love stand-up so much. So it was this combination of things that kind of shifted me into 
going from I'm alone in my room, living in my fantasy worlds. And by fantasy, I don't necessarily mean the genre fantasy, but kind of in, a, in my imagination. And then I was outputting it through short stories, outputting it through plays, outputting it through things for myself. And then it was kind of in that early 20s phase where I swapped over and I ended up working amongst creatives, like going to the world called, oh, there are other writers here. Oh, yeah. doing stand-up. Oh, every night I'm gigging with other comics who are trying to do a thing and who are writing their own material. I mean, in the majority of cases. And so you're really in it and you're surrounded by creatives. And I had never been, I had never experienced that all through that time. So that was kind of this really creatively fertile period for me where I was just like, just throwing myself into this new world and kind of throwing myself into creativity. And it wasn't just about me by myself, it was about all these incredible other people that I got to meet along the way. So that's kind of the shift. I love it. I love it. I think the the one thing I've noticed over the years is the passion in the creative world of people who have tried to exist in normal jobs as such mm-hmm. and realised that they can't. I think it's something that's really incomparable and it's really identifiable. Like, again, I know that I've moved from music to podcasting to acting to script writing to all these things, partly because I know I can't go and do th- th- that other thing. Yeah, I tried, I tried stuck, really man. hard I'm for stuck. a long time. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it kind of takes away the kind of option. It's not a, oh, I'd like to do this. It's like, right, no, this is what I have to do. And it's it then makes it so exciting to me, at least, when you do get to do that. And I think it's really interesting hearing your base there as such, your your the travel at a young age. I think travel, it sounds like such a bougie thing to say, but I only learned it when I started touring with music. Travelling to different cultures and different areas is really important for your world outlook, your social mm-hmm. outlook and all these things. But I watch a lot of, of mixed martial arts, and this is going uh, to sound weird going. here. But... Um, <laughs> One of the things that's talked about a lot in mixed martial arts is what's the best base to come into mixed martial arts. So is it high school wrestling? Is it right. is it karate from a young age? Is it Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Yeah, what's the best base to then convert into this art, which is all of the arts? You right. know, what's the best entry? And looking through your wiki, it seemed like you had the most unique and kind of amazing base to becoming a writer from data scientist to domestic violence support worker to stand-up comedian. That feels like a real range. That feels like a real of, ADHD. Of background. Yeah, yeah. But then to come into it as a to come into the yeah. world of writing, it seems great. And hearing of all the travel as well and different yeah. cultures, it means you've got this really broad range of experiences, you know, intentionally or otherwise. So and yeah. I think that can be really important. I think everyone always says write what you know, write what you know, but as we've seen in film, you know, it's changing now, but I believe modern films started to become a bit dry because people were r- writing what they knew, but the only people who were allowed to write were middle-class white men. <laughs> and and there's not that, you know, there's some there's been some amazing stories from Absolutely. that realm, yeah, but we get to a on, point yeah. where it starts, the, the well starts right. to run dry and we're remaking everything over and over again. So the beauty of, again, it's one of the reasons I just love the recent push for diversity is because it's not a box ticking process or a quota filling process it's exciting stories that we've not heard before and exciting voices that we've not heard before so that's you know a positive and exciting thing yeah it's interesting i have such an interesting my take on kind of the diversity inclusion and i say debate with much disdain that we're even calling it debate with it kind of evolved has evolved over time so much i also think like 
fundamentally it's a moral good. So why have you got a fucking problem with it? It's yeah. part, yeah. Of, part of the real baseline part of the conversation for me. I think I'm just exhausted by, uh, not just in writing, but kind of previous to that, even in stand-up, like this whole, I just, it's a lot. It's a lot. We don't need, yeah, whatever. The, but the, the, the thing that's also interesting, just thinking about what you said in terms of write what you know, because I think when I think sometimes writers can get hung up on that idea, like write what you know. So, well, what do I know? What's in my experience? But it's also, I think, a way that helps me reframe it sometimes because often I'm writing something fantastical. Or I'm writing something kind of left, just le- an alternative universe that's left of our own. Mm. And so write what you know really means like write what you know emotionally because yeah. that's the thing that everyone knows emotionally. Yeah. That's the point of connection. So emotionally, we've all we've all been there we've all been whatever your version of it whether you're whether your whether your pain is a six on average or a 10 on average you yeah. still know what it is and you can extrapolate from that you you know what that pain is and can extrapolate out from that i should hope but then you know that's the fundamentals of empathy and i don't know i've been down a rabbit hole but <laughs> the past week on like what's going on in the uk and it's stressing me out yeah. but um that right what you know i always think it's not just about where you've been or what you've been up to it's right what you know emotionally and you know those kind of there's a positives of moving around a lot and I think about I think my life got substantially easier in my 20s and 30s and it still hasn't been particularly easy but I think it was just rough in a very surprising way like a rough growing up was I would say what we went through Mm. and just a lot of surprising things happened that I think are very hard to connect with other people's experiences and so I think that just gave me this huge, like, trauma gave me a hugely emotional well to draw from. <laughs> um, and that's as much as, you know, I would have preferred to have it differently. I think I value young me for surviving and for understanding and yeah. giving self compassion and now being able to kind of be like, oh, that's how I can have, I think that's probably part of why I'm often like drowning in empathy <laughs> now as an adult. And yeah. I think that's it. As much as it might be painful, I think that's a good thing. So, yeah, sorry, I'm just rambling. On no, my I completely on, right, agree. Know? No, and, and, and can we talk a little bit more then about, not about your trauma. <laughs> can we get into that for a second? Yeah, sure, um, let's just dig in. No, yeah. um, I want to talk a little bit more about representation. And there's a lot I want to talk about here because okay. I think you, again, we will get onto Miss Marvel and not because it's a big Marvel thing, but because I think it's one of the examples of representation done near perfectly but we'll get on to that. How do you find the constant fight in this world? Because I, I work, I'm i a patron of Stammer, the British mm. Stammering Association. I've had a Stammer since I was four or five. And our big campaign last year was to try and get better representation of Stammers in TV and film. Because in this recent push for representation of genders, of sexualities, of races, religions, classes and disabilities stammering really seems to be one that's been completely ignored and and left behind there's no great characters or or you know the representation just isn't there and and one to two percent of adults like have a stammer so it's a really interesting one but it's also i found it exhausting to be part of the campaigning for that it was a weird one because i've worked with stammer for years and tv and film wasn't the focus until last year's so it's not like i joined them and was like Let's get me some more gigs. Let's <laughs> let's sort out representation. But even then, it did. It was the first campaign I'd been part of that I felt like I'm putting the spotlight on myself a little bit more than I was expecting yeah, I to, or comfortable yeah. with kind of thing. And yeah. and again, I I I spoke to Stammer about this a lot about needing to take time off and breaks because as much as I believe in the calls and want to champion the calls, also I've been acting for s- six years now. I've never had a character who's had a stammer, which is right 
interesting, but equally, I don't want to just be the stammer guy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be the guy that every role is a stammer and, and, and this yeah. and that. So it's a weird one when you you're are, campaigning you are much these more things. Than the thing than the element of you that you are actively marginalised for. That's yeah. part of the problem, is that yeah. actually we're being excluded or put into a certain category as a result of the thing that, I don't know how to express that, but just we're, we're more than the thing that the air quotes majority who marginalise us. Yeah. Marginalise yeah. us for, but we are also that thing. So it's it's yeah, that kind I, of push pull between it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I I want to be able to present this, but I don't want to only present this. That's, that's not the only yeah. thing I want to talk about. But one reason I was excited to talk to you about it is you've been a big inspiration to me in this process because you've done some amazing things. You've been doing some great in- initiatives with Netflix mm-hmm. and others over representation and diversity so yeah i guess how do you find that how have you found pushing opening those doors and then how have you found it for you personally to to, because as we said right surviving in this industry alone is exhausting surviving in this industry and trying to action change yes it's it's another thing why do we do a single thing any day yeah i think so so it feels like it's kind of worth separating into two pathways because there's when I think back, if I put writing down and writing for television and film down for a second and think about what I've experienced life-wise in terms of the lack of impact, the impact of a lack of representation or a lack of... Yeah. I think sometimes we... I was talking about this with someone the other day about how the language we use now is so uh, diluted and has so been like used up by different groups politically online and kind of in Twitter brain and how we use words has changed so much that when I say representation... I could mean one thing and the person I'm speaking to could be thinking about, well, oh, representation mean the reason why I don't have jobs anymore. Like there's a whole different, we all have different connotations of these things that are kind of emotional. And I think, so I always try and get on a level with someone like, this is what I mean when I'm talking about representation. So we can make sure we're engaging in an an actual shared language when we're talking about it. Because that's also how you get into these tricky, convoluted arguments with people who are not talking to you in good faith. But um, when I think about my journey with this, what we're talking about is how someone like me is perceived in the world, how that affects me on a day-to-day basis, how that affects my mental health, how it affects the people that I love, how it affects them, how it affects people who are not, who don't share the same point of difference necessarily as I do, but how we're in solidarity with each other, with each other or not, and how we're moving through the world. That really is affected directly by media culture and what we see and what we perceive and what we believe about the world and what we are learning about the world. I mean, for everybody. So if I think back to like, when I was doing stand-up and it was a while, it's been a while, man. Like it was, I started doing stand-up in 2012. I moved to LA in like 2019, 2018. But I was, at that time when I started doing stand-up, there were some other female Asian comics, but not that many. Were we ever on mm. the same gigs? Never. And I was driving around this country up and down in the run-up to Brexit to pubs in the middle of nowhere. This, I'm like small, like I'm not small sideways, but I'm like five foot two. And alone in my car to place in the middle of this country, trying to like, and also internally in my own body, what am I trying to accomplish? I'm trying to win this audience over. And when you're going up on stage in that context, in like middle England, in a pub, and your name, my name gets called out and you can feel, I can feel the edge in my body suddenly Mm. start going. And not in the fun way, not in that I'm about to go on stage and do a gig and I want to smash this in a way of like, what the fuck am I doing here? Why have I put myself at risk? And that started to really transform. I could actively feel that because I kicked all over the country. I drove for hours and hours and hours by myself, returning at like four in the morning in the same car, getting myself in situations at a young age where I was like, why am I putting myself at risk for this thing that, even though I love it, I love the act of stand-up, as time went on and as this country started to change 
more and more towards kind of where we ended up or where we are now, especially, which is just, you know, where we are. I started to question, like, what do I, what was I doing this for? Like, if in the best case scenario in a gig, this is like peak post-Brexit, like post-2016, we've got Trump coming in in the US, we've got Brexit voted for here. I remember really distinctly one gig that I went to and my husband, who's also, who's also at the time kind of, well, my husband's also a comic, like being on the phone to me, like, I'm going to do this gig, I'm sitting outside the pub, I don't know if I should do it. Like, I feel really anxious mm-hmm. about the kind of way I'm being looked at just standing outside. I'm the only non-white person here. And I feel really stressed. Like, I feel the stress before I've even gone into this pub. And I went in, I did the gig, and they just... And there's a difference between... I've bummed plenty. I'm happy to bum. Like, I'll, that's my that's the story of my life, right? Like, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. But there's a difference between bombing and feeling deeply unsafe. Like, deeply, mm-hmm. like, these people hate me because of who I am, because I exist. And I, that just got worse and worse. Like there was this period of time where I was like, I don't know how to carry on doing this. And I also think the best case scenario, even at that gig, right, was if I smashed and I turned them around and I'd done that. I'd gone into rooms like that where I was like, actively, there was so much heat off the back of who I was just turning yeah. up. But I turned around and won them over. And at, in, the t- in the moment, you feel adrenaline, you feel proud, you feel like, you know, the dopamine's pumping. You're like, wait, that was really good. People are coming up to you like, oh, you really surprised me. And, you know, if you unpack that later, you really surprised me. It means like, well, what the fuck did you think when I walked up there? Yeah. And why was that the surprise? So I was never starting on a base level. And I think that's the best case scenario is winning over people who genuinely would vote against any like humanity for me and would actively like harm to come to me. I don't know that that's a good way to live. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know that I care enough. I don't know. I would love to say that I was think when I was younger, certainly, I was very much about like, if we can just connect to people and engage with them, they'll see my humanity and they'll change how they think. I'm too old for that shit. Like if, if it's, it's on you to have your humanity and develop it and grow it, grow it and be a better person. It's not on us, the people who are being hurt by something to like come and begging, like, please, sir, can I have some empathy? Absolutely not. What are you talking about? So now kind of, as I get older, I kind of go more on the side of like, good luck to you, brother. Like, I'm I'm going to do what's best for like us and like build our community. Yeah. And so I think that experience when I was kind of in my 20s and it got worse, like it really, it really got me down. And I think that's even when you, that's when you're just looking at audiences. And this isn't across the board, but it was enough for me to start feeling like I have to think about whether this is right for me. But yeah. also then, put that down that's audiences if you look internally at like what the actual industry was at that time and who the gatekeepers were and why you're being gatekept out something and there comes a point you know there comes a point when you're like it can be about x it could be i'm not good enough it could be i don't have fit a taste model but if i'm looking at your lineup and it's 10 white guys and some of them their jokes are interchangeable i mean bless them and i'm everyone works so hard in this field to get to that point and if I'm going on these with them, we're doing equally well and I'm getting accolades in certain places and some spaces you're like, there's only one thing left, whether it's your internal con- unconscious bias, whether whatever it is, you know, and I'm not saying I'm entitled to every single gig, but I'm entitled to the same shots mm-hmm. as people. So, yeah. so when you're looking at, ex- so, sorry, this is a long way to answer your question, but I'm getting there. So you're looking externally at like, who's the audience I'm playing to? What is the, me as an individual, not just as an artist who represents something in the world as like a, as a lightning rod for what race is and, you know, the debate about it. No, I'm talking about me as an individual human being with a right to enjoy life, with a right to live, with a right to be safe. What's the value of me doing that? And what's the kind of personal, moral and ethical standpoint I have where, oh, my goal was to win over people who are racist? Mm. Why was like, no, not for me for like 10 minutes. And then they can go back to who is that relieving? Who is that assuaging in that moment? That really weighed heavily on me that I think way too much about these things. So that really weighed heavily on me on that side. Internally on the industry, there's kind of this like, 
there was at that time this kind of cloying, smiling, like, oh my gosh, it's such a good point you make about race. And I talked about race a fair bit on stage. And yet at the same time, there was no real, there was, it didn't feel like there was a real active change on the inside. Mm. And, you know, those combinations, I was like, I love this art form. I love the friends I've made through doing this. And then kind of the reality of, ah, wait, I've experienced this in other fields as well. It's not just this field. It's every single one of them. So that's the thing that's kind of the why of representation. It can be really selfish. It can be like, I want this world to feel better. I want the way we treat people to be different. I want us to be seen more. And I want structurally to change things. And I want the idea of diversity and inclusion to go away. Because yeah. again, we're putting in the segment as like a, sorry, I'm so rambling, but as like this yeah. add-on, this like kind of, and this. So this, so the default plus this, that doesn't change the default. That just says default and addendum. Yeah. And we shouldn't be in the addendum. We're, part, we're meant to be part of the default. And I think that's the thing that I'm struggling with now is how do you break something and remold it that doesn't want to be broken? Like it just fundamentally, no system right now, no capitalist system wants to be broken because it's working for no. the people who, you know, so... Sorry, I'm going on such a journey. So the kind of off the back of that, just thinking about how my role in that and whether having a role in that, dedicating how much of my time do I dedicate to changing that or pushing towards it or even just being vocal about it versus my right to be an artist devoid of all of this additional shit, like devoid yeah. of having to have these conversations, devoid of having to justify why I exist devoid of having to explain to like random people who think that, oh, she's been hired because she's of a certain race. She's been hired. And I've had that in every single job across so, as you said, so many different fields across yeah. in any kind of echelon, like any kind of facet of what I've tried to do. So I'm like, so every single thing I've done has become because of my race and you're the ones who are saying it. So it's kind of yeah. this, you're just, it's just such a trap. So one of the kind of personal questions I have to ask myself is how much of my time goes towards changing that system, which to me is starting to feel a bit like changing that audience. And it's not mm -hmm. on me to change that audience. Yeah. It's on them to change themselves if they really want to commit to it. And instead, focusing on my community, my people who have been through this and who are still suffering through a version of this. And I will say that comedy scene has changed significantly in that time, since since that time I was doing it. Yeah. But what? how can I create pockets of community? And in the same way that you kind of you find your people that you want to creatively work with, like one of the writers from, I mean, all the writers from Miss Marvel, but like Father Mazga and I, just like so close. And we just like, we know we're going to work together on multiple things in the future. I've got other writers from other projects. There was one of the writers from Loki who I became very close to. We're definitely going to work together on stuff. So in the same way, thinking about how can I build those communities and use whatever institutional or structural power that I have. And I know that that isn't necessarily the best way to make change, but using what I do have to be able to carve space for them, to give them opportunity, to kind of cut out some of the some of the, please, sir, can I have some empathy? You don't have to ask me. You already have my empathy. And so that's what I'm trying to make a space for in doing those things. And I have to navigate kind of corporate spaces to make those things and make those bubbles as much as I possibly can. So I don't know. Sorry, I spoke for like half an hour, but you get it. <laughs> no, no, it's it's it's, it's honestly, it's a, a beautiful thing to see. Myself and Nikesh uh, Patel talked about this with regards to you and with, with regards to Gus Khan of the battle to get through the door, but then the the strength and empathy and focus to hold not only hold that door open for others, but to try and build more spaces where you don't have to hold the fucking door open, where the door is going to open yeah. automatically for different people. It shouldn't have yeah. to be, oh, Beecher's letting this in the back, as if you're being snuck through. It's like, no, let's build no. more places where you're being celebrated and welcomed in rather than anything else. And yeah, it's a beautiful thing to see. What's wild about all that is, is like fundamentally, 
before we even talk about structural change and getting people in the door, you have to be the best. And I don't mean like competitively. Yeah. I mean, like you have to be the best version of yourself in your craft. You have, we just have to yeah. be hitting a rate that is so high because there are so many fewer positions for us to take. So yeah. Yeah. when I look at like, this is a very general statement, but like when I look at like people of color operating at a certain level, you have to be so, so good to be where you are. You've yeah. had, there are so many fewer opportunities that you just have to have like just done <laughs> to get there. There's so much you have to have done that's extra. So it's like the thing that's bizarre to me is just how much incredible talent we have pushing at the highest level across different marginalized groups because you have to be to even get your foot in the door in a way that like there's one thing I used to say all the time. It's like I, I pray for the day when we get to just be completely mediocre. Like mm-hmm. that would be great. Like if, if like all marginalized groups could be completely mediocre and get the same opportunity as everybody else. Yeah. Delicious. Mission accomplished. 100%. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to touch briefly on on, on Miss Marvel now, because as I said, I'm coming at it as just a huge fan. And <laughs> I spoke to um, to Ruth Maidley about years and years being a great example of representation for... Oh, I love that show. For, for Ruth being in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. but also at points her character isn't in a wheelchair and they don't over-explain it, because in her life she's often not in a wheelchair. It's, 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 it's a right. mix of both. That there wasn't any kind of talking down to the audience. And what I adored about Miss Marvel was it was a beautiful sh- showcasing of culture that isn't necessarily showcased in M- Marvel or Disney or whatever, mm-hmm. any of these big franchises, but it was also just cool as fuck and fun <laughs> and enjoyable and 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 silly and casual. It it didn't feel like it was it felt like it did an amazing thing, but it didn't feel like that was the point of it, if you know what right. I mean. Like, I like, like, yeah. like she kind of, she's a teenager, like, fundamentally. Yeah. She's a teenager. It's a story you know, about a teenager who just happens to be, yeah. we're seeing all these different parts of culture. So, yeah, how was that to, to work on a show like that, to get so many beautiful, small nuances in and across, and then to have it received amazingly? You know, it's kind of the, you might expect to get one or two of those things, but not all of those things. You might expect to be received well, but not get to get all the interesting things in you wanted or get all the interesting things in you want. And then no one really watches it, but you know you did something good. This was kind of, it felt like the best of both worlds. No, it was really, it's, it was, it's kind of looking back now, a few years out, it feels, I know it came out last year, my goodness. Um, mentally, a few, it feels yeah. like I've made it like a lifetime ago. I'm a different person entirely, frankly. <laughs> but it, you're so in it that you're, in the process, you're so like nose to the page or like nose to the grind. What's the phrase? I don't know. Why are people yeah, grinding nose their noses? to the grindstone for some reason. Right. I guess they're like leaning over it really intensely. In that time, I, you're so just committed to the ideas and the vision and like what this could be. We didn't have like a concrete example to point and be like, it'll be like this. We had multiple influences. But in yeah. terms of those elements that you're talking about, we just knew we had to say, stay so committed to those details, to those small things that felt important and also give everybody the freedom to add their own, frankly, like when, especially with the kind of behind the scenes people that we brought in. So that felt really clear from the start because otherwise, fundamentally, her race, and I'm talking about the character, her race and her cultural background could not be costumes. They had to be like part of the fabric of who she was. Yeah. And that felt really vital and that felt really important to all the writers. And I think people ask me this question a lot, like, you know, how did you go about figuring out the representation? I was a bit like, well, we are the thing. <laughs> all the writers, we are the thing that we're talking about. So it's not like, <laughs> yeah. it's not like, ooh, they put in like a certain kind of 
poster on the wall or kind of artwork on the wall that's like really common in South Asian houses. Like, yeah, we're a bunch of South Asians. Like it's not, yeah. it ain't a leap for us, baby. Like that's yeah. that's kind of what came naturally to us, you know? I love having those things that execs or whomever can't argue. It's like, you know, <laughs> that like, even if it is, a, oh, that's not realistic or that wouldn't happen. When you can say, oh no, it did. Yeah, no, this, it's very this was This was, a, it's really helpful to go, no, you can't. Yeah. You can't fight that. It's yeah. it's real. <laughs> no, exactly. And that's kind of a very, you know, and, you know, obviously we had Sana Aman and so it was very easy to, there's nothing that she would say no to, frankly, mm. in terms of representation. It just felt very natural. And I think at a point it came to like curation. Like how do we like make a show that's six hours long and not, like I would have made a 40 hour show if I could have. Like how do we make it, um, how do we make it as tight and precise as possible? So putting in elements of ourselves, and I mean, God, this sorry, this stupid self-insert debate recently had my head spinning. Kind of putting elements of like our cultural selves that were in alignment with that character. It just felt very natural to all of us. And it it wasn't a taxing thing by any means. But it was so exciting to see the other side, people who related not just to the details and like the design and the family, but how that family dynamic was, the characters that existed in her community, people relating to those characters. That was really fun. Like the small things that are really common in our community that like the shoe thief or um, girls chatting too much in masjid, like things like that, um, or and boys chatting too much in masjid. Uh, just those elements, people connecting to those small details, like, oh yeah, we have that, we have that around my place. It's kind of, it's like it's like when I watch, I'm sorry, this is such a weird comp, because the part of London I grew up in was at Hounslow. When Bennett like Beckham came out and I was like, they were the Hounslow Harriers. I was like, oh my God, I'm that's Lam- is that Lambton Park? And that, I used to live across from Lambton Park. So I was like, home, holy moly. Like, and I didn't ever, such a weird way of putting it, but that gut recognition of something in your life. I mean, that one literally was Lambton Park across my house, but yeah. the, the gut recognition of something in your life is very visceral, I think, when you're watching big media. Completely. There's um there's a a musician called Jerome Ellis, mm-hmm. but it's with a load of J's at the start because he has a stammer. He put out an album awesome. two years ago now. And it got sent to me, obviously, because anything with stammers in, people send it to me. Because right. it, it was one of them where I was like, oh, I like that Educating Britain or Yorkshire one and the King's yeah, Speech, all these kind of things. Yeah, I love that kit. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's genuinely, but so many of them come through that I always go in quite cynical. And this yeah. was one that's got this two-part story kind of thing. And it's about phoning up a bookstore. And the first part had my kind of heart in my throat. And when it got to the second part, I was driving to Margate and I had to, to pull over because it it was that weird thing of this guy is American. Mm-hmm. We'd never met at that point. There's so m- many things that we don't... He's a black American man. There's so, so many things that we don't culturally share. But this small story he told was just something I've never spoken out loud, something I've right. never expressed out loud. Right. And things like that can be so important to... to 100%. to 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 humanity kind of thing it's really it yeah. it clicks through I've been thinking about that a lot recently in kind of other aspects of who I am and like my life because I think there's the thing with Miss Marvel that's wonderful is it's so joyous like it's so mm. like celebratory yeah and that's great love it and I think about kind of what I'm working on now kind of and developing and thinking about and I think one thing that dominates my life is mental health and kind of my opinions on it and how yeah. it's treated and my own mental health and what that means in a really real way. And I kind of, I think this is such a weird thing to bring up. But like, I, I think about the medium of podcasting. I think about the medium of any media. I remember when I was like 20, Mark Maron started doing WTF, right? Like so mm-hmm. over like 10 years ago, <laughs> over 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to that podcast 
And there's something about the way he expressed himself, something about what he, and also, frankly, the earlier episodes. But I'd never met anyone in my life, I'd never spoken to anyone in my life up until that point who had openly talked about not wanting to be alive anymore and also surviving to an older age. Mm. <laughs> and I think I remember having this visceral, like, I had like this, I developed like this parasocial relationship with Mark Maron in my head <laughs> because I was listening yeah. to so much of it because I'd never... I was such a lonely kid and I didn't know what clinical, I didn't know what depression was. And especially in my family, like it wasn't, mental health wasn't a thing. Like they were just, people just are sad, not sad. And I was like, I think this is more than that. I think I didn't have the words for it, but when you're like, and I've had it since I was a child and that is really hard to explain to people kind of either the constant dread or numbness Mm. and kind of this feeling of like, maybe you should put content on at the top of this episode um, of thinking about, it's not that I want to die, it's just that I don't want to be alive anymore. And I yeah. think that is something that I never, ever, ever had anybody speaking about it openly. And been listening to that podcast, listening to Mark Maron talk about, A, just his mode of expression. He has a capacity to express anger in a way that I could feel anger, but I've never been taught that it was okay for me to express anger. Yeah. And so I was so like thrilled to hear someone be angry and be eloquent and kind of, he talk, he laughs about it now as kind of, and talks about it as an element of bitterness as well. But I'm like, oh my God, wow, yes, because I feel that I've never been allowed to express that in any way. And I remember so that visceral moment when he talked about those ideas and feelings and kind of named it. And this guy, I have nothing in common with this man, aside from probably this. And I remember thinking, if this person can experience this and can then live to the age he's lived to, I was operating in a space mentally where I'd often think, like, I'm not going to make it past 28. Like, I'm not going to make it. Mm-hmm. And I think... Then he was he was way older than 28 when I started listening to the podcast. I remember listening to him thinking, oh, so he feels this way and he's found a way to keep going. Yeah. That's cool. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. Okay, so maybe I can make it to whatever age he is. And it sounds so basic, but that is off the back of someone talking about something that's affected them in the context of media, in the context of putting it out into the world. And I think about, I've been thinking about that impact of that for me personally a lot recently, just because of wanting to talk about through story, through theme, some of the things that I've kind of, sat with for the last 33 well 34 in two weeks um 34 years so that's something in terms of what you're talking about in terms of representation I think is so valuable and feels like a draw for me like I feel like I have to I don't there's nothing else I want to talk about right now aside from that so Mm. that's what I'm I think it's really important I completely relate and uh, and not to to plug my own podcast here but the episodes with Eddie Temple Morris Gail Porter and maybe the Limmy one or the yeah. the Jeff Lloyd one were all ones one where I was just floored by just the openness. And I completely relate on the Mark, Mark Maron front as well. I had a period where I couldn't listen to more than one or two episodes a week because it was so yeah. raw and so visceral yeah, and affected that, me so much. Where it was so, yeah. so many podcasts I'd binge. I'll just be, I'll be doing uh-huh. a lot of driving. I'm listening to that all the way here and all the way back. Whereas yeah. with Mark, I was like, I want one a little bit into my journey. I can't handle it at the start. I can't handle it at the yeah. end. But I need one a little bit in because it was so, yeah, the way he spoke on I these felt things, like I the honesty. I needed honestness. it, man. Like I felt yeah. like I needed to hear it. I would listen again and again. I needed yeah. it. I needed to like, sorry, I need to feel like, oh, there's a way out. There's a way to survive what you yeah. feel. Yeah. I don't know. I've been thinking about it a lot. Not it's Mark intense. Maron, but kind of this topic. Like, I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot. It, it was on my list of things to talk about, weirdly, because I wanted to ask you how you are at looking after yourself. Because it's something I'm... <laughs> Terrible. I can, for me, I think it's something that is a constant... It's constant habits. It's constant w- w- work. Right. Because 
those jobs that we are avoiding in an office have a clock off time yeah the lives that we've built for ourselves are based purely inside our own heads and we can't escape our own heads i've spoken on this before of i'm rubbish at holidays because i kind of feel to enjoy a holiday you need to have a a boss to be on holiday from and if you're the boss is in my head it comes with me everywhere and that can be tough so yeah how are you Look, and again, the, the pressures of success in this industry as a writer means it's it's a world of solitude at times. You will mm. be having to lock yourself away to work on stuff, and that can that can that yeah. can get dark. If we want to lighten it, then we can go into eating habits whilst writing because you did some very controversial posts confessing <laughs> uh, what you choose to eat during these. Um, writing sessions yeah yeah, how is all that and how's the balance because as I said I do think it's a constant thing yeah I'm happy to talk about that I'm happy to talk about that openly I would say it depends when you ask me right like you asked me today if you'd asked me a year ago or like even a few like at the end of last year I would have had a completely different answer for you because for me it all goes in phases um and there are different periods that are great and I feel really like emotionally easily to regulate (laughs) and I feel really like I can keep up a routine and there are other periods where I just can't and that's full stop. That's what happens. You're, you're yeah. crashed out of the world. And I think that's in some ways, you know, I think I feel a bit of not bitterness towards, but a bit of like frustration towards kind of the online kind of sparky response to mental health, which is like sleep good hours and use this web app and then do this and do these things. And like an Instagram account, like the commodification of mental health solutions into tiny snippets and that whole kind of industry that's growing, which I'm sure is helpful. And I found helpful in some ways, but in other ways, I'm like, we don't have the tools and language to talk about it when it gets really dark. When and it gets we can't really talk ugly. about it broadly either, because it is no. so personal and individual. Like this yeah. podcast, you emailed me about this yesterday and we booked it in. If you'd <laughs> yeah. emailed me last week about booking it in today, I would have swerved it because I wasn't in a right. place mentally. Yep. And I didn't think I would be by this times. week. Yeah. I, I didn't feel I would yeah. be by this week to be able to do this. It happened that we organised it last minute. Last minute. I'd just come out of the cinema. I was in, I was like, yes. Great. It's all kind of, <laughs> of clicking. But yeah, I think it is, it's, it's weird because, as you say, like, when I started doing this, this this podcast, we got a lot of love for the openness on discussion of mental health because it wasn't as openly discussed. And whilst now it is far more, there's also an opinion that everyone has the solution to your problem. And that yeah, can be and really frustrating to hear. I do not, you know, because when, when people ask me, like, how I often get this question because I'm open about my mental health and kind of my diagnoses, <laughs> but I am um, not in kind of like a, I'm not an activist type of way, but yeah. like I'll, I think it's important to talk about it when we get to talk about it. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm also in a leadership position often. I'm also in a position of, in business, I'm like running businesses. That's what eventually a show is. Like you've got to yeah. run a business yeah. and you've got to deliver. Yeah, <laughs> um, so it's also proving, to me, it's about proving and saying that I have these things and I can find a way to do this with the right support. But when I, people ask like, what's the solution or what are your solves? I don't have any solves. I don't, I haven't figured it out. I am, how do I share this without being too scary? But like I would say when the pandemic kicked off, I think things escalated for me personally. I thought I'd get more resilient with age. I haven't. <laughs> I've gotten less resilient with age, absolutely. And I think when the pandemic happened, there was a year, and I'm not exaggerating when I say this, and I get to keep working because I'm a writer, I worked from home, but there was a year where I did not leave the house, aside from there were only, you know when people said, oh, go for the walk outside. I wouldn't even go for the walk outside. I did not leave my apartment 
for a full year, with the exception of twice walking to the pharmacy to get, I think my husband was ill one day and I went to go and buy him. But those are the only two times I left my house in a year. And I was like housebound. And, you know, I have a fantastic, fantastic husband who is just the kindest and sweetest and our mental health kind of speaks to like complement each other (laughs) in a very valuable way. But um, I just accept that part of myself and now I'm kind of come out of it. But now I still have phases of like, say you've got to go, I've got a job to write. If I have a job to write a movie, for example, I will focus my mind on that and I'll end up going like a month or two without leaving the house. And, you know, it'll take it. My friends will be like, hey, we haven't seen you. What's going on? And there's a difference between tunnel vision and genuinely like not leaving the bounds of my garden, like yeah. of my front lawn. And when I'm in it, it feels either really good because it's safe or it feels really bad because I'm judging myself, I'm criticizing myself, I'm putting a lot of stuff on myself. And externally, like kind of when it's weird, I get this weird, weird kick of like shame when someone like you says something like, oh, because of all your success, X, Y, Z. And in my head, I'm like, if this is what success looks like, well, shit, <laughs> what am I, yeah. what yeah. am I doing? So there's like this huge divide between, and this is why I struggle with kind of the outside face of like press. And I think I have so much time for journalists and doing press and supporting shows and the projects and all the people who've worked on it, but you're dividing yourself. Like I'm actively dividing myself. It's a kind of masking that is very painful, but I think it's really important to do. And, you know, once you get into it, you get into it, but like, it's like, oh, you've had this great success. It's like, oh, I haven't left the house in two months. And I feel like, nothing I feel so worthless and also how dare I have a single problem because I've had success is how I treat myself so it's you know right now I'm doing pretty good right now I'm feeling on top of stuff and I'm feeling like excited about what I've got on my plate and I feel like I'm moving through it really well and I'm in a good place if you ask me at the end of last year like I I mean I can't really talk about this thing half my work is done in secret I can't really talk about the show but there's something out coming out later this year that I've worked on last year that was such a joy and was so great and then as soon as the adrenaline of that kind of finished, of being in production on that finished, I crashed. I crashed out hard. Like, I fell so low at mm. the end of last year. And now I'm cycling back out of it. So, yeah, it's just this kind of, it's phases. And in terms of how to take care of myself, I'm lucky, again, about my husband. He's so good at kind of, I wouldn't be alive without him, I think. <laughs> and I think uh, I have a really close friend. It's so funny. Sorry, this is a side note. You're, when I look at the guests you've had on this podcast, I have such a weird relationship with the list because it's like you've got Killer Mike, you've got KSI, you've got Ryan Jones for coming, you've got Florence Pugh, and then you've got like Tim Renka, who's like one of my oldest friends, who's like, oh, this fucking guy, like we've cried <laughs> together so many times. And then you've got like Jamali Maddox, who's like at one of the two best men at our wedding. So I'm like, this is such oh, wow. a weird, weird connection of, and like this is like people on this, I'm like, oh, that guy was really mean to me backstage at a gig once, or that guy was really nice to me on this other occasion. Like Adam K randomly, like I, last year when I was on set, there was one day I was so ill. And I don't know what happened. I just could not breathe. And he he was a friend of someone that I was working really closely with. And I won't say who that person is. And that person was like, Bisha, go home. Like, get out of here. And so I went home. I left set. Still couldn't breathe all the way home. And then he's like, do you want me to... I'm mates with Adam K. Do you want me to give, give him your number? Like, I spoke to him. He says, you can call him. And I called him. And the guy was like, but we've never met before. He was so sweet. He was like, you need to be at a hospital. And so mm-hmm. I went to the hospital and I had pneumonia and I didn't realize. Anyway, sorry. Wow. The list of guests that you have is, it was very generous and kind of him. I have such a weird, like either like idolatry of some of the guests that you've had or like such a like, that guy was kind of weird with me or that guy was really rude to me or that person made me cry or that person tried to take weird photos of me or I love that person. They've been in my life for 10 years. It's such a bizarre thing. Anyway, 
I don't know where I, how I went on that tangent, but I have I great friends it. like Tim, for example. Yeah, yeah. Like who are just has been such an important part of my life, and I have other kind of this very close circle who know that when she's in her hole, how do we make sure she's at least checked in on, <laughs> and she might come out. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it is so personal and unique, and as I said, it is a constant thing. I had a week or two back, I had some stuff going on that. I'm a 41-year-old man. I didn't expect Mm -hmm. to be going through, you know, these huge emotions that I was going through at this point. And I will preach all the time about reach out to friends, all this kind of thing. In that period, there was at least four days where not only did I not want to see anyone, I didn't want anyone to reach out kind of thing. And I felt bad that I had mates kind of checking in and I was swerving it and avoiding it because I was like, no, that's not where I am at the moment. And again, thankfully after... Four or five days, I started to to find my way out of that. But queen of the swerve, buddy, like I completely, yeah, yeah I'm completely. But, I mean, with you. but three weeks ago, I wouldn't have predicted ever feeling like that again. Like, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's was, it was one of those yeah. things where you get to a certain age when you've experienced a certain amount of dark times in your your life that you do. Mm-hmm. And and again, when we're in a world that's so fucking horrible, you do start to go right. I'm quite numb. So yeah. that that's horrible period, there's kind of beautiful moments afterwards where you're like well at least <laughs> at least I'm alive at least I can yeah. feel that clearly shows I've still got all these emotions and all that and yeah it's really weird it's I don't so think there's bizarre. a solution but I'm glad you've got a partner that complements your your mental health needs and friends who at versa. least know to give you a knock kind of thing do you know what I mean yeah. to check in but yeah. not push too hard and things like that yeah and it's always that's the thing it's like they will ask me, like, do you want to go do something? And they know, and I know that I'm going to say no. Like, I'm yeah. not going to leave the house. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. it's not going to happen yeah. for whatever that period of time is. And I think, it's as you say, it's like how to knock without pushing. And I I sometimes will just stop talking to people. Yeah. And it's so interesting because, like, it doesn't match up with my professional face at all, right? Like, I, it's probably yeah. the first time I've spoken about it this earnestly in any kind of external yeah. context is with you right now. So the way it doesn't match up is, and it creates kind of like a weirdly... I comedic tragedy in my head was like someone that I may have mentored like three years ago it's like oh hi I just thought we'd reach out and catch up with you it's been great I'd love to catch up with you on zoom let you know what I'm up to and what I've been doing and thank you so much again for the time that you gave to me three years ago or two years ago whatever it was and I'm getting this like really like and also I'll get loads of requests for mentorship a lot of the time and I'm really open to it when I have genuine capacity and space and time to do it but you'll get like really hopeful joyful (laughs) emails from young artists who are like I want to be part of this and like, how can I do it and help me? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and when I'm in those modes and I'm getting those messages, I just feel like it's, it's like the the people are, I'm so happy for them, so proud of them for reaching out. But it's like in my head, in Bisha, kind of me as a full human, yeah. I'm like, oh, I have nothing to offer anyone. Like yeah. I, there's, no, there's nothing you, of If me. only you knew. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Yeah. If only you knew that I'm like, um, yeah, yeah, I can't move today. Yeah. And I think that something that, I'm working on finding ways to be more forgiving of myself because I feel like if I let people down a lot because of it, I just, it just it's just a spiral, isn't it? It's just a big old yeah. shame spiral. And I've always been hypervigilant. Like, I think that's something I developed growing up is I'm always, and it kind of probably helped me in stand-up to some degree of like always reading constantly every expression, every micro-expression, yeah. extrapolating out every scenario that every expression could mean, that every moment could mean. Yeah. And that's exhausting. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know why I went on this. No, no, I, I really appreciate you being so, 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 so honest and open about things. I think it is always weird when I get people reach out about anything work based in a mentory type 
manner, asking how to to be a success in this industry because my instant <laughs> thought is always what are you talking if, about if i find out i'll let you know if if, if, yes. if i find if i figure out how to make this work you honestly i'll be happy to share it but i haven't got a clue at the moment well i mean i've taken loads of your time i really appreciate your time and your openness and i kind of always end by asking what's ahead but the more i have writers or actors on i'm aware that there's probably it's probably the hardest question to answer just because of things you can't talk about and things like that. So yeah, what is what yeah. is ahead loosely? There's something coming out this year, full stop, can't say yep. anything about it. Yep. There's something probably coming out the year after, full stop, can't say anything about it. There's maybe something else come that, you know, hasn't gone in production yet, but might go out, come out at some point. Yeah. Full stop. Like I've just been I've been that's the thing, is I haven't sorry, I'm not I'm you're trying to wrap this up and I'm still talking. No, I think that's the thing. It's like part of, part of, I'll get this idea out and then I'll stop talking about this. But the part of the problem with trying to push through in like a high stress industry is a feeling like if I'm not working, I'm failing. Mm -hmm. And I tell people, I I advise people all the time to let go of the idea, but I also find it very hard to take my own advice. (laughs) And when you are someone who is juggling, not just like, the remnants of not the remnants but like the after effects of a lifetime of kind of just living in this world as yeah. like a rich as someone who's constant often ra- racialized and living in through very difficult times where you're the group that you're part of is overtly marginalized that in and of itself is hard but to add to that whatever like bullshit you had to go through growing up whatever stuff your brain was born with and then you want to operate in a field where like the baseline person operating is relatively privileged. And by privilege, I mean, does not have um, those similar experiences mm-hmm. and financially is kind of fine. It's just a lot, man. Like, it's just a lot. So when people ask me, like, what are you working on next? I'm like, maybe it should be nothing. But but um, yeah. so I've got those th- those projects coming out and I've kind of committing to, after the set of projects I've got on right now, I'm kind of coming to slowing down in terms of focus and being like, the big thing that I want to do next and that I've been working on is this movie that I'm planning to direct. And I think that's just put all of myself into that rather than splitting myself in a thousand different directions. Yeah. So all kinds of stuff, nothing I can talk about, but we'll do this again when the next thing comes out. It'll be a good conversation. I love it. And it's a different thing, isn't it? When you've got that project that, and again, it's where I am at, at the moment. I'm not going to go into mad detail, but I've got this project that I want to direct and things like that. And having those meetings, it feels different. I had one... I had, a, I had a, a, a couple this past week, which again, you said about separating personal from professional. At the point of those two meetings, I hadn't spoken to another human in five mm-hmm. or six days because I'd been going mm-hmm. through some shit. Yet, when it was work time, you're, you're, you're I'm, I mean, had these amazing chats. It was great. But one of them was like, you realise that the thing you've got planned here, it's going to be quite intense. It's going to be really hard work. It's going to be this and that. Yeah. And I was buzzing because it's yep. it, it's a different thing when it's your project. There's it yes. just hits differently. I was like, oh yeah, no, I'm That's fu- the plan. please please be aware. I'm fully aware of that, and I can't yeah. fucking wait. Like, yeah. please just let me get that stressed. And I know it's mm-hmm. going to be a horrible m- month or whatever it is, but it's everything I want at the moment. All I want to yeah. be is in that in that thing, and that's different. As said, when it is someone else's project or you're part, you're a cog in a project. Obviously, normally if you're part of the project. The pressures aren't the same. The the stresses aren't the same. But yeah, it it was an amazing thing to have that in this meeting, have them highlight mm-hmm. that, and then see my face light up. Like, oh yeah, 
I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. For, I can't wait. I'm hungry for it. <laughs> yeah, that's also like, that is not the solution, but in sometimes it can be that like, yeah. The thing that you get hyper, I mean, again, it's a symptom of ADHD, but like the thing that you hyper focus on for me is when I'm in flow writing, then I'm like at peace, man. Like when I can actually get in flow, like that's when I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. This is the thing that I was meant to be doing. Like this is the thing as in with my life, even when I'm really low, if I can ever get myself, I mean, when I'm really low, it's impossible. When you get to a point where I consistently write my way out of those spells, like Mm -hmm. write my way out of that year of staying indoors, write my way out of last year, like being miserable, consistently after loads of ups and downs, it's not the first solution. For me, because that's my thing, I will write my way out of it. Or it'll mm. be a friend who calls me up and says, I'm working on this thing. Do you want to come and do a day where we just like throw some ideas around? Like you can come and consult. And that as a carrot for me, lifts me out. Like it really lifts me out of like that creative communion with either myself on the page or with somebody else on the page. That is for me that even though I, I'm unable to access it and think about it at the time when it gets really hard, that for me is my like way out of any of those situations. I think. I love note. it. I love it. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll wrap things up there. But thank you. thank you. It's been a joy, and I appreciate you as a as a yeah. as an artist and as a human. So I appreciate you taking the time Likewise. and uh, to chat. Thanks. I hope I didn't go. Yeah, I'll just say thank you. I was like, I hope I didn't go too dark. Not <laughs> That's <at> life. <laughs> Not at all. All right. Brilliant. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. Well, there we go. I told you it was a good one. Again, huge thanks and love for Bisha for being so open and just for educating me, man. <laughs> educating me on the writing world, on the entertainment world, on the um, activism world, on the mental health world. All of these things, really powerful and really beautiful and I felt really honoured I know that this was the first public place that Bisher has talked about some of this stuff and I just feel mad honoured to be trusted with that I guess yeah thank you for tuning in everyone it legit means the world um if you could shout about the podcast a bit I haven't asked for this in years now you know the whole like and subscribe and rate and tell your friends and all that I've been doing it too long to keep asking all that stuff, but every now and then it's worth reminding you all that word of mouth, particularly for an independent podcast, is really key. So if this episode or any others resonate with you, then um, tell people. It doesn't even have to be on socials or whatever. It doesn't have to be some big thing. It can be personal. It can be direct. Or it can be on, on socials and things like that. So, yeah, I appreciate you all. The world's a weird place at the moment and connecting with and being aware of the good people is more important than ever because you're damn right we're going to be made aware of the not good people. So uh, balance, ladies and gentlemen, balance. Until next week, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta. <laughs>